1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence, on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For years, allegations of war crimes hung over Hashim Thaci, the president of Kosovo. For years, he's denied them. Now, a court has charged him just as he headed to talks to resolve a 20-year-old territorial standoff with Serbia. And in Sierra Leone, a three-story brick house might be taxed the same as a tin-roofed shack or a house that isn't even there. As civic improvements race ahead in the capital, Freetown, tax assessors are having to get their houses in order. But first... Israel's cabinet could have begun discussions yesterday over a contentious issue, plans to annex parts of the West Bank, home to 3 million Palestinians and 430,000 Israeli settlers. For Palestinians, the territory is supposed to form the heart of a future state. Across the world, protests erupted as July 1st drew near. Yet the day came and went, Avi Berkovich Friedman Earlier this week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said work on the plan was ongoing, a signal that there could be delays. Israel's annexation plans have already drawn plenty of opposition from the international community.
2: If implemented, annexation
3: would constitute the most serious violation of international law, grievously harm the prospect of a two-state solution and undercut the possibilities of a renewal of negotiations.
1: There's fear that what comes next could bury the peace process. But it's long been more about process than peace.
2: Anticipation had been building for months around this July 1st date. It was the first date on which the Israeli government could begin to discuss annexation in the West Bank. But due to a number of disagreements between members of the Israeli government with the American government, Nothing, in fact, happened yesterday.
1: Greg Carlstrom is our Middle East correspondent.
2: The West Bank, of course, is one of the territories that Israel occupied during the 1967 war against its Arab neighbors, and it's one of the only remaining territories that has not been either annexed or returned. The West Bank remains occupied territory, and its status is supposed to be resolved not by unilateral Israeli action, but by a peace agreement in the future between the Israelis and the Palestinians.
1: And why is it that July 1st has been made this important date? Why is annexation on the agenda?
2: Annexation has always been a dream for members of the Israeli right, but it's been a fringe position in Israeli politics. It's not something that any prime minister or any cabinet has seriously pursued over the past half a century. That started to change last year, when Prime Minister Netanyahu was facing the first of what turned out to be three successive elections in Israel, and before the first election and the second election, promised that if he was re-elected, he would annex parts of the West Bank. Now he got a boost, and this really hit the agenda in January, when Donald Trump released his uh, long-awaited Israeli-Palestinian peace plan, uh, which envisioned the Palestinian state in Gaza and on 70% of the West Bank. The remaining 30 percent of the West Bank, which includes both Israeli settlements and the Jordan Valley, uh, was seen as being part of Israel in this future agreement. It was immediately rejected by the Palestinians, uh, but it was enthusiastically endorsed by Prime Minister Netanyahu, who, after the plan was released, uh, set about trying to annex the land that was earmarked to be part of Israel. The Americans asked him to wait, in part because at the time he was facing his third election— Uh, And in the coalition agreement he signed with Benny Gantz, his rival turned partner in this unity government, Uh, they agreed that July 1st would be the date on which the cabinet could begin discussing annexation.
1: And the discussion is about annexing that full 30% that's, that's made available in the Trump plan?
2: That is one of the options being discussed, but there's a lot of uncertainty around what Israel wants to do and what America would be willing to support. So there has been talk about annexing that full 30%. There's also been talk of doing something smaller. Uh, maybe one or two settlement blocks like Malay Ad-O-Mim, uh places near Jerusalem. Uh, there's a third option, which would be to annex isolated outposts deep in the West Bank as a way of establishing facts on the ground. The idea being for the Israeli right, uh, if you annex a little something now and you cross that Rubicon, it becomes easier to annex more territory in the future. Uh, and then you have others, particularly in the Israeli military and the security establishment, who don't think Netanyahu will do anything at all, who think that this whole thing is sort of a political ploy and that the most he will do uh, is perhaps set up a committee to begin discussing annexation but not actually do anything.
1: Well, how much support is there in Israel for the plan in general?
2: Polls generally find that uh, at most half the public supports it. Some polls find a lower level of support. Uh, But the one thing that becomes clear uh, in all of these polls is that very few Israelis think it's a priority right now. The country is, of course, preoccupied, uh, as most countries are, with COVID-19, with the economic damage of lockdowns. uh, And most Israelis think the government should focus on those issues and not annexation. Benny Gantz said this week that annexation should wait until the coronavirus crisis has been contained. You also have Israeli settlers who are nervous about the idea of annexation, albeit for different reasons. Of course... Ideologically, they would love to go ahead, but uh, they're nervous about the Trump plan because it references creating a Palestinian state. And so you have some settlers on the right uh, who think that if Israel goes ahead with the Trump plan, that it will acknowledge the possibility of a Palestinian state in the future.
1: And what about support for Mr. Trump's peace plan among his own people? How do Americans take this?
2: It would be a stretch to say that America is in favor of this. You have members of the Trump administration uh, who support annexation, although there are disagreements about how much it should approve and when Israel should move forward. But on the other side of the aisle, politically, there is a lot of opposition from Democrats. Uh, Joe Biden, the party's presidential nominee, has said he opposes any annexations. uh, And more than half of the Democrats in Congress have signed letters opposing the move.
1: And what about the Arab world more generally, where this has been a a flashpoint for decades?
2: There's a lot of rhetorical opposition in the Arab world, but whether it goes further than rhetoric uh, is still an open question at this point. Uh, On the one hand, you have Egypt, one of the two Arab states that has formal diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, They've been conspicuously silent about this. They're preoccupied with uh, their own crises at the moment. Jordan has been much louder. They're worried that annexation would threaten the possibility of a two-state solution. They're worried about the response from the large Palestinian population inside of Jordan, but they don't have much leverage over Israel. Then you have the Gulf states, which don't have official ties with Israel, but countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates uh, have certainly built quiet uh, security and intelligence and even economic ties with Israel over the past decade. They have been publicly critical of uh, any talk of annexation, but they also have common interests with Israel. They're both hostile towards Iran and towards political Islam, and whatever Israel does or does not do in the West Bank, uh, those interests will endure.
1: And I can presume that Palestinians themselves are opposed to any form of this plan.
2: You would be correct. There's almost unanimous opposition amongst Palestinians to annexing territory. Uh, But there's also a sense of resignation, honestly, amongst Palestinians. They have watched over the past few decades as these Israeli settlements have expanded across the West Bank. Years, decades of peace talks have led nowhere, have brought them no closer to a two-state solution. Uh, And so there's also a sense amongst Palestinians that, uh, in practice, this doesn't change anything. Even if Israel does go ahead and annex territory, uh, it almost formalizes a reality that they've been living with anyway for decades.
1: So where does that leave us, then, with, with distraction, with resignation, with disinterest? Is the peace process dead here?
2: This is the warning you hear from many supporters of Israel who oppose Israeli plans to annex. They say if Israel goes ahead and does anything, it will be the death knell for the two-state solution. Uh, but the fact is, even if Israel were to back down and do nothing, there's little prospect for even renewed negotiations, let alone an actual deal. You have on the one side uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has spent his entire career really trying to block a Palestinian state. On the other side, you have the Palestinians Uh, who for a decade and a half now have been divided between Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza. You have America, the historic mediator here, that is entirely too distracted and divided to play a role as a mediator right now. But I think what's really significant about all of this talk of annexation is, you look at the diplomatic activity around it, the, the Democrats, European powers, Arab states, the Palestinians, Uh, all of them scrambling right now to preserve a status quo that should have ended decades ago. The Oslo Accords, which started this formal peace process, uh, they were meant to be a five-year interim agreement. They're pushing 30 at this point. Uh, And so I think uh, rather than saying annexation would be the death knell for the peace process, for the two-state solution, I think the talk of annexation uh, shows you just how badly that peace process has already failed.
1: Greg, thanks very much for your time.
2: Thank you.
1: flushcarecom slash Hashim Thaci, the president of Kosovo, got something of a surprise when he was on his way to the White House last week. He was supposed to meet his Serbian counterpart, Aleksandr Vucic, for historic talks about normalizing relations between the two countries. Instead, Mr. Thaci was indicted for war crimes by the Kosovo Specialist Chambers in The Hague, the White House meeting collapsed. Mr. Thaci denied the accusations, but said he would resign if the charges are confirmed. That, though, could be months away.
3: When the Kosovo War began in 1998, President Thaci became what officially, they say, the political director. He was a kind of political commissar of the guerrilla movement, the Kosovo Liberation Army.
1: Tim Judah is The Economist's Balkans correspondent.
3: And in that sense, he was the right man in the right place at the right time, both for the KLA, but for himself politically. And after the war, since the war, he's certainly been a towering figure in Kosovo politics. Having said that, the problem has been that ever since the end of the war, he's been dogged by accusations of uh, war crimes during during this period, during the war, and indeed of being a, a, a mafia boss, something he has always denied.
1: And so what exactly is he accused of in this indictment?
3: Well, exactly, we don't know. In fact, what's happened is that the prosecution of this court, the Kosovo Specialist Chambers, put out a press release on the 24th of June where it says that they allege that he, Kadri Vaseli, who's a longtime kind of friend and close political collaborator, and others are criminally responsible for 100 murders They talk about disappearances of people, persecution and torture. But beyond that, actually, we don't really know. The Kosovo Specialist Chambers is really quite an unusual body. It is actually a Kosovo institution, but it is set up in The Hague, staffed with international judges and prosecutors. But it operates under Kosovo law.
1: And how has Mr. Thaci responded to, to these charges?
3: Initially, he said nothing, and then finally, on Monday the 29th, he recorded a statement, it was rather an emotional statement, in which he again denied anything took place. He said that the war in Kosovo had been just, pure. I mean, he repeated things that he'd said in the past. And he said that he thought that it was a shame that this uh, accusation had come just before he was supposed to go for this meeting in Washington with his opposite number, Alexander Vucic, the president of uh, Serbia. He said, No good intention or great will for justice can justify the fabrication of a media bomb to incriminate the head of the state of Kosovo at the exact moment when dialogue with Serbia could enter a new phase, thanks to the direct engagement of the White House.
1: And what about that timing? Do you do you see any significance in the fact that this comes just before what was supposed to be a, uh, a flashy White House trip?
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's quite possible that the prosecution had wind that there might be something in the works, in the talks with uh, Serbia, that either the, the court would somehow be shut down or that Mr. Thaci might demand and be given some form of immunity. But, you know... We may never know because this court has been extremely good at keeping its secrets. They do say in the accusation that uh, Mr. Tharchi and his colleague Kadri Faseli had done a lot to obstruct and undermine the work of the court. They actually accused them of carrying out a secret campaign to overturn the law, creating the court and otherwise obstruct the work of the court in an attempt to ensure that they do not face it. Justice. So I think that is probably the explanation of why it happened just before this, uh, as you say, flashy White House meeting.
1: And what was at stake for this White House summit?
3: Well, in the last uh, few weeks, Ambassador Grinnell, who had been uh, charged by the White House for overseeing the talks, had kind of somewhat downplayed expectations about them. But, you know, before that, there had been all sorts of ideas floating about. And the big idea was that maybe Serbia and and Kosovo would exchange territories, physical territories, with thousands of people in them as part of a a grand deal, which would include the recognition of Kosovo by Serbia. You know, that had a lot of opposition in Kosovo and and, and also in Serbia. Then the idea was, okay, let's try and restart talks about the economy. But actually, you know, the economy is not really a problem between Serbia and Kosovo. The real issue is a political issue. And Kosovo wants to be recognized as a sovereign and independent state by Serbia. And Serbia's leaders say they're never going to do that. So, you know, there's a blockage there.
1: And so what happens next then?
3: Well, now everything turns into a kind of wait and see mode. Because actually, Mr. Thaci was charged. But the mechanics of the court mean that the charges go to a pretrial judge and then he has six months to make up his mind. Either he can say, these charges are nonsense, I'm throwing them out, or he can say, yes, these look realistic to me and a formal indictment is then issued. So what Mr Thalci has said is that he's not going to resign, as many people thought that he would, but he's going to stay on and he... Will only resign if the pretrial judge confirms the indictment.
1: And what about the talks with Serbia?
3: You know, it's really anybody's guess because although Mr. Faci remains as president, and although President Macron of France and Angela Merkel of Germany have said that they would like now to convene a meeting in Paris, it looks, it's going to be really hard to do this because, you know, this uh, has really blown the political legs off Mr. Tharchi. He's, of course, innocent until proven guilty, but I find it really hard to believe that Mr. Macron and uh, Mrs. Merkel and other European leaders are going to want to be seen in public with him and shaking his hand. So, uh, you know, I think that any talk of a breakthrough you know, has really been blown off course by what's happened.
1: Tim, thanks very much for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Water, electricity, cable TV, property tax. For many of us, a levy on a home's value is just another bill. But for governments, it's a crucial source of revenue. In Africa, though, as a fraction of economic heft, tax assessors rake in just a fifth of what their rich world colleagues do. Some jurisdictions are trying to change that.
0: Yvonne Akisoya, who's the mayor of Freetown, which is the capital of Sierra Leone, is hoping to bring in five times more revenue this year through property tax.
1: Olivia Ackland writes about Africa for The Economist.
0: The wealthy are going to have to pay much more for their large properties. And the payments are all going to be made in the bank instead of to bribeable tax collectors on doorsteps.
1: And what's prompted these changes?
0: So last year, the city council got around 70% of its budget from foreign donors. And so in order to really sustainably change the city and pay for its upkeep, Miss Aki Sawyer needs to raise much more revenue locally. And there's still a lot to do in Freetown. The electricity is deeply unreliable. It flickers on and off throughout the day. In the middle of the city, there's a pile of festering rubbish bigger than a football field. And similarly, the water supplies are also erratic. And so in order to really change Freetown, she needs more money.
1: And so why haven't property taxes been the way to do that until now?
0: It's quite difficult to value buildings when you don't even know they exist. African cities are growing incredibly fast. Lots of cities will have tripled in size by 2050. And the tax registers are very out of date. Officials in Kenya's capital, Nairobi, are using a property register that dates back to 1982. Since 1982, Nairobi has more than quadrupled in size. And before Miss Aki Sawyer became mayor of Freetown, the property register was a bunch of ink scrolls on a bundle of papers, and it was totally disorganised. But establishing that the buildings exist isn't the end of the problem. So some valuation systems can be far too simple. For example, in cities in the Democratic Republic of Congo and in Eritrea and Burundi, houses are taxed only according to their dimensions. So... In effect, this means that someone with a hut made out of corrugated iron has to pay as much as their neighbour who has a comfortable brick house of the same size.
1: And so how do you go about fixing all those problems?
0: The property register in Freetown has now been digitised with the help of International Growth Centre and the International Centre for Tax and Development, two foreign research bodies. And they've used satellite images to count the properties and they also sent staff to traipse around the city with iPhones to plug in details. So things like whether or not the house was brick or whether or not the house was tin, roughly how big the roof was. This is quite an efficient way to do things because you need to have a sort of reasonably good system of valuing the properties so that people don't get ripped off unfairly. But if the system's too elaborate, then the councils waste masses of money and masses of time collecting tiny details about every property.
1: But that will mean that some people will be paying less and plenty of people will be paying more. I mean, how, how do the people feel about the, the new way?
0: So the new system is definitely controversial because the number of properties have, has over-doubled. So in other words, a lot of people who weren't paying before now have to cough up. And so a lot of people in Freetown are complaining and saying that it's unfair. But other people are happy because the old system was so rotten that I spoke to a guy who owned a little hut made of corrugated iron.
2: So I feeling bad. And that's not been good and well with
0: me. And he was paying the same as his neighbour down the road with a three-storey brick house. And See, he said that was deeply unfair. And he's happy that there's so a I new system bad. that's addressed and that. Well. At the same time, I think counting the houses and reforming the system is just half the battle because... People are not going to want to pay their property tax if they feel that the public services are crummy. So if you own a house halfway down a mud road next to a festering heap of rubbish, then you're unlikely to want to pay your property tax on time.
1: Olivia, thanks very much for
0: joining us. Thanks very much, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and you can find a deal on a subscription to The Economist at economist.com/intelligenceoffer. See you back here tomorrow.